Have you ever felt peculiar? Yeah, I think all of us have had those moments where heads turn toward you, you know, all eyes lock on to you because you were different. You, you were an outsider. You were one of them and not one of us. I remember playing football. It was my sophomore year of high school, my JV year. Uh, it had been like four years since I last put on a helmet and shoulder pads. But I, I decided I wanted that, that football experience in high school. And so I'll, I'll never forget, we're on that first week of practice. We're doing two-a-days, or as we call them on my team, double days, uh, which is like two practices in one day. And we're, we're running this, this kickoff drill that involves like 11 of us lining up. And then at the blow of a whistle, we'd run down most of the length of the field. And, and when the play was done, we'd turn around and we'd jog back to our starting point. And we'd wait our turn to, to start again. And there were like 50 of us doing this. And, and because I hadn't played in a while, man, I, I really hadn't learned how to pace myself yet. And so I was given like 100% of myself every single play. I, I felt like Rudy out there. Man, my body was torn up. But I remember there was this one play where I'd finished the drill and I was jogging back. And my coach suddenly called out for me, hey, Parrish come here. And so I, I jogged over and I said, yeah, coach. And he said, have you ever played football before? I said, yeah, I, I played two years in like fifth and sixth grade. Why? He said, just curious. And with that, he sent me away. Now that was like 20 years ago now. And to this day, I still stop sometimes and think, about that conversation and I'm completely confused because I have no idea to this day why he asked me that question. Like, did I, did I look great out there? Did I, I look weird out there? I, I honestly have no idea. All I know is that for him, I stood out and I suspect it was for all the wrong reasons because I, I was kind of a mediocre football player at best. But suddenly I, I was part of a new community and one in which I didn't really fit in for whatever reason that was. And there's a good chance that, that you've had that experience before too. A, a moment where maybe you were the only male in the room or the only female in the room or the only person of a certain skin color or nationality or language or whatever it was. Like that's an uncomfortable place to be. Now I, I, I recognize something. I recognize that my story is pretty vanilla compared to what a lot of other people, a lot of what maybe you have experienced in your life. And yet right there in the middle of this, this discomfort is the reality of God's people in exile. If you, if you are joining us for the first time, we are now in week five of our sermon series, which we are calling Captive. And Captive is a series really that's designed to look at the intersection between our reality as, as people here in captivity, here sheltering in place in our homes, and the reality of God's people. You know, 600 years before Christ ever walked the earth, they're removed from Jerusalem. They're removed from the nation of Judah in which they lived, and they're held captive in this foreign land of Babylon. And so last week in our, our story, in our journey through the, the story of the Babylonian captivity, we found ourselves wading through the waters of the book of Lamentations. It's a, a book of, of five poems. And each one is lamenting that pain and sorrow that comes with being conquered, that comes with being removed 
from your home. Like Lamentations reflects those moments when you've lost something that is near and dear to you, but it's too late. And there's nothing left, nothing that you can do about it, except sit there in that pain. The the kind of pain that we we all know only through, through deep and sincere things like loss and death and divorce. Because that's what this captivity was. It was a a divorce between God and his people. A divorce because of their unfaithfulness to him. You can read more about that in Jeremiah 3. And yet, just like in divorce, life must go on. A person can't simply sit and eat their tears forever. And so as we continue in this story, as we continue in this march through, through God's exiled people, We come now to the book of Daniel. And Daniel's an interesting book because it's a book that that reflects and represents what what life in captivity is and what it's supposed to look like for God's people. Because I want you to keep in mind, God's people are not here by mistake. They're not here by happenstance. They're they're here because of, of the justice and the will of God. He is the one who put them here in Babylon. And so as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, God's plan for his people here in Babylon is very, very specific. We can read about that in Jeremiah 29. We read this a couple of weeks ago where God says directly to them, he says, hey, I want you to build homes. I want you to settle down. I want you to plant gardens and, and eat what your gardens produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. He says, increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, he says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, he says, you too will prosper. In other words, God wants his people not to be malcontents, not to be people who are are undermining the the kingdom of Babylon, but rather, he says, I want you to put down roots and I want you to make a life for yourself here in this foreign land. And yet, just like we talked about last week, when when we began, whenever we we join a a new community of people, there will be moments when when we become peculiar, when things become peculiar. And it's one of those kinds of moments that we, we read about here in the book of Daniel or that Daniel introduces us to. And so I invite you to read along with me. We're going to be in Daniel chapter one, beginning in verse one. And this is what Daniel says. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. 
And he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. And so the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Now, my, my cousin Sean is, is a pretty awesome guy. And it's just, he's just one of those really, really thoughtful people. One of those people who just loves to give gifts. Uh, it's something I envy because that's not my giftedness. But that's what he does. And so on a whim last week, he just decided to, to mail us a Blu-ray of the movie Top Gun because I had mentioned somewhere along the way in a text message or phone call or something of how I'd wanted to, to re-watch Top Gun because it had been so long and there's this new one coming out and so on. And so what do you know? The next thing I know, here comes my copy of Top Gun being delivered right to my door. And so last week we sat down and we watched it for the first time in probably 20 or 25 years. And it was almost like a new movie for me because it, it had been so long. But what I, what I didn't remember about Top Gun was what Top Gun actually was. That these, these characters that you guys have, are so familiar with, like Goose and Iceman and Maverick and so on, they, they weren't just fighter pilots like I had remembered. These guys were supposed to be the best of the best of the best fighter pilots in the entire Navy. And Top Gun was the school that they had been selected to because they were the best. And so as Daniel begins, that's kind of what's going on here in Babylon, right? King Nebuchadnezzar, he wants the best of the best of the best Israelite men to be taught and trained in the very best of what Babylonian culture has to offer. And so he wants the youngest men, he wants the fittest men, he wants the handsomest men, the smartest men, and he wants them to learn their ways. And then he wants them to work in his service. It, it, it kind of reminds me, it's kind of like a top athlete. When there's somebody that you want on your team that bad, man, you roll out the red carpet for those guys. You, you wine and dine them. You, you do whatever it takes to make sure they have access to the very best food and the best trainers and the best equipment, whatever it will take to, to get them on your team and to make sure that they're successful in the process. And so Daniel 1 tells a story of, of four of those Israelite exiles, Daniel being one of them. And it says in verse six, it says, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now this, this is not the same Hananiah that we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he died. <laughs> but these are four elite young men from Judah who are, who are living now in exile in Babylon. And all four of these men currently have four very Jewish names. And yet the, the very first sign that things are, are amiss a little bit is going to come here in verse 7. Because part of being a good and proper Babylonian means having a good and proper Babylonian name. And so verse 7 says that the, the chief official came to them or gave to them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And you might be tempted, like at first glance, you might think, okay, like what's the big deal here? Like people in Hollywood change their names all the time. And that's true, but that's, that's not like this. Like this is something else. Because the, the names that were given to these four men, they weren't just Babylonian names. 
They were names that suggested that they were now in the service of a different God, a, a Babylonian God. When you kind of dig into this a little bit, commentators are divided on exactly what, what Shadrach and Meshach mean. But there's a general agreement that they, they, have, they involve service to the god Aku. Uh, in the same way, Abednego uh, means something like servant of Nabu. And Belteshazzar means, you know, protect his life. But you'll notice there at the very beginning of that word that the reference to Bel, right? The, the god Bel. And so what's the first thing that happens to these, these four faithful servants of the one true God of Israel? Well, they're stripped of their identities and they're given new identities that are grounded in the culture and the gods of the people of Babylon. And yet it's verse eight where this story begins to take a little bit of a turn because it's when Daniel and the other three men begin to, to draw a line in the sand. Like we will go this far and no farther. Verse eight says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, this is a big deal because for the, for the king's chief official, uh, his job is on the line because his job is to make these men the, the very best of the best of the best. And, and if they aren't eating the best and they don't become the best, that's going to reflect poorly on him. And so he, he agrees to a 10-day trial uh, where, where Daniel and others would, would drink only water and they would eat only vegetables. And then they would wait and they would see whether the men look fit and strong or, or not. And if not, then I guess they reevaluate or they go back to eating what is on the king's table. And so what, what Daniel is, is most likely concerned about here is, is really multifaceted. Like, is Daniel against eating meat? I think the answer to that is no. But Daniel is against eating meat that was sacrificed to some other god, some false god. Like that would be an issue for Daniel. You read commentary, some commentators and scholars point to maybe some other reasons for their decision. Like it could have been a way for them not to give into the, the earthly pleasures of this life that the king was offering them uh, and instead opt for uh, waiting for God's pleasures and God's providence. That was one, one possibility. Another one said it, it could have been a way for them to maintain solidarity, right, with the, the other exiles who didn't have access to some of the same luxuries and resources and quality of food that they did. And that, and that by saying no, that they're kind of choosing to suffer along with their people. Another commentator might say, oh, well, it really has something more to do with cultural distinctiveness because food represents something significant for a culture. Because like, yeah, when you think about all the different cultures around the globe, one of the biggest lines of demarcation is around food. You think of, of Mexico and the United States, like we have very, very different cultural diets. Well, Babylon and Judah probably did as well. And so whether some of those reasons or all of those reasons are, are true is really just an educated guess at best. But, but considering Daniel's concern is with defiling himself and the others, I, I think the issue of greatest concern would be where that meat is coming from. That, that it's a meat that is sacrificed to some other God, some false God. And as, as people of the one true God, they don't want any part of that. And so what do veg vegetables represent? Well, they represent safety. Like no, nobody sacrifices a vegetable to any God. And so what would happen at the end of 10 days? Well, you look at verse 15, it says, 
that the men looked healthier, they looked better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And so the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And so as, as time would go on, God would bring favor over the lives of these four men. The, the text says that, that God gave them knowledge and understanding of, of literature and learning that, that Daniel could even understand visions and dreams, which is going to come into play later on in this book. And so at the end of their, their three years of training, all of the, the trainees, including these four men, are presented to King Nebuchadnezzar for him to, to examine, talk to, and look at. And, and it's determined that these guys are the very best of all the recruits. So much so that they, they were said to be here in the text 10 times better than all the magicians and all the enchanters in the king's entire kingdom. Now, it's a figure of speech. Were they literally 10 times better? Probably not, but they're way better. And so on the surface, you look at the story, and it's, it's kind of this weird little story about four men changing their diets in service to some foreign king. And yet, Daniel chapter 1 is, is so much more than that because it, it represents something profound. It represents something that affects the lives of every believing person on the face of the globe, including me and including you. You know, Daniel, Daniel 1 represents the intersection of identity as citizens in the kingdom of God and the identity as citizens in kingdoms and nations of this world. And so as I survey the, the climate of, of faith and of national allegiance around us today, I see a lot of confusion about how these two identities are supposed to, to interact or intersect as people of God. You know, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says something really, really profound to his disciples. He says, he says, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. And yet, all around me, when I look around at people's lives, that's exactly the reality that I see people trying to live. That they're trying to perfect a way to serve two masters. But if we're being honest, I mean, Jesus' words were true then, and his words continue to be true now. He says you can't serve two masters. It's impossible. And so there will always inevitably be a tension between loyalty to a nation of any kind and loyalty to faith in God or faith in Jesus. There will be times when those two are not in alignment with one another. And so the question that emerges from that reality is like, how do we navigate that tension? You know, in, in recent years, uh, two terms have come to the forefront of our, our collective conversations as citizens of earthly kingdoms, uh, patriotism and nationalism. And these are terms that, that are not exclusive to us as citizens of the United States, but they're, they're really affecting lots of nations around the globe right now. Historically, when you look into it, both of these, these terms were sort of used interchangeably. They were synonymous with one another. And yet, as, as language does, like these two terms have evolved over time to mean something similar but different. 
And those differences, I, I think, are significant enough that, well, Merriam-Webster wrote an entire article tracing the, the meaning and usage of each term over time. And so here's what they had to say. I'm, I'm going to read it verbatim. Merriam-Webster says, there are still obvious areas of overlap between these two terms, between patriotism and nationalism. They said, we define patriotism as love for or devotion to one's country and nationalism in part as loyalty and devotion to a nation. But they said, the definition of nationalism also includes exalting one nation above all others and placing primary emphasis on promotion of its culture and interests as opposed to those of other nations or supranational groups. They said this exclusionary aspect is not shared by patriotism. In other words, over time, the term nationalism has evolved. It's evolved to, to being not just proud of who you are, not just proud of where you come from, but, but it's promoting a particular nation. It's, it's promoting their interests and their culture over and above everything else. And, and I bring this up because that's exactly the kind of mentality that, that Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah are facing as they're transplanted into a foreign land. Like living there isn't enough. Serving the king isn't enough. They are being called upon to, to change names to Babylonian names, serving Babylonian gods, and they're being asked to eat Babylonian food sacrificed to those Babylonian gods. And so King Nebuchadnezzar's entire objective is to teach them how to be the best Babylonians they can possibly be. So Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, like they have no problem, it would seem, with patriotism toward Babylon, with, with service to the king and the country. And after all, I mean, that is what God called on the exiles to do, was to put down roots and seek the peace and prosperity of Babylonian land. But their problem and, and contention emerges with Babylon's nationalism. Their insistence that these four men embrace the fullness of what it means to be Babylonians, gods and all. And so that creates a sticking point for them because it, it calls upon them to elevate Babylon's national interests in their lives, sometimes even above the interests of their faith in God. Now, we don't, we don't really like to be confronted with this reality. But the fact of the matter is that, that we as Christians often face very similar kinds of pressures. Pressure is not simply to, to put down roots and seek peace and prosperity for our land, patriotism, but pressures to elevate the interests of a nation above the teaching, above the interests of our faith. And that reality for us puts us in a very similar position to what these four men in Babylon were facing. You know, just this week, uh, Pastor Brian Zahn, who's an author and notable pastor, he put a statement on social media and he said this, he said, to confess that Jesus is Lord is to simultaneously renounce nationalism. To confess Jesus as Lord is to simultaneously renounce nationalism. 
Now, as, as you might imagine, you know, a statement like that kind of raises some questions. What does he mean? So he elaborates. He says this, I quote him. He says, is it permissible for a Christian to be patriotic? He says, yes and no. It depends on what is meant by patriotism. If by patriotism we mean a benign pride of place that encourages civic duty and responsible citizenship, then patriotism poses no conflict with Christian baptismal identity. He says, but, but if by patriotism we mean religious devotion to nationalism at the expense of the well-being of other nations, if we mean a, a willingness to kill others, even other Christians, in the name of national allegiance, if we mean an uncritical support of political policies without regard to their justice, then patriotism is a repudiation of Christian baptismal identity. It is extraordinarily naive, he says, for a Christian to rule out categorically the possibility of any conflict between their national identity and their baptismal identity. And so, friends, church, like you, I, I love my fatherland. I, I use that term intentionally because, incidentally, the, the Greek root of the word patriotism is pater, or father in Greek. I love our fatherland. I, I love our city. I love our state. And I love our country. And I would, I would gladly and honorably serve any and, and all three to, to help seek the peace and prosperity of this nation that we call home. And I would venture to guess that a lot of you would, would do exactly the same thing. And yet, just like these four men in Babylon, as Christians and, and followers of Christ, there are limits. There are moments where we are called to, to draw a line in the sand and say this far and no further. And so the difficulty that we all face is really when and where to draw that line. Because there's a, a gray area here. There's a fuzzy area. There's a tension that exists for each and every one of us in that. And I think that the guys at the Bible Project, if you guys ever watched their videos, I think they really hit the nail on the head here. They, they worded it so well. But they spoke about these, these four men in Babylon and they said this. They said that the way of the exile is a combination of loyalty plus subversion or loyalty and subversion. In other words, for Christians... You know, we are called to live in that same tension, that tension between loyalty and subversion. And that, that's not an easy place to find clarity. And yet we know, we know that we cannot serve two masters. We have only one. You know, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four, he says, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so friends, our, our allegiance as Christians is a singular allegiance. And it's rooted 
in the oneness of God. And so as, as Christians living in the nations where God has placed us to live and serve and, and better our communities, like I've lived long enough to know that it can be, it can be challenging to live in that tension. And yet when we look at the life and the decisions that were made by Daniel and Mishael and Hananiah and Azariah back in Daniel 1, we can begin to find tools to help us discern when and where to say yes and say no. And so I think sifting through those tensions starts right here. And I want you to write this down. Write this down. Live within, but don't live with sin. I'm going to say that one more time. Live within, but don't live with sin. What do I mean? I mean this. That God has absolutely called us to live in the fullness of the nations and the communities where he has placed us. Just as he intended for the exiles in Babylon, God calls on each of us to live within. In other words, we don't go and we and cloister ourselves and shut ourselves off from the world around us. We are not called to monasteries. We are called to be part of and to contribute to the fabric of life where we live, to take pride in it, to better it, to further it, to live fully within it. And yet, don't live with sin. Like those four words mean so much for our lives. They engage the sinfulness that is within each and every single one of us. And they call us to strive not to be sinful people. And they call us not to live with a posture of condoning the sin that happens in the world around us. Because some of us see and hear and we experience things in our world and in our nation that are, that are just downright sinful. Things do, that do not bring glory to God. And some of us as Christians turn a blind eye to those things. And I'm here to say we cannot do that. Our mission as people of God is to live righteous lives, striving against sin both within us internally and in the world around us. We are called to be a voice for the voiceless, to advocate for the oppressed, to take care of the poor, and to love our enemies. We live within, but don't live with sin. And that, I think, is what Daniel 1 models for us as Christians. It's, it's a life that is lived in exile, a life that is lived in, in service to a nation, but not a life that turns a blind eye when nation seeks to defile us. These four men were not the only ones who were recruited to serve the king from among God's people. But as far as we can tell, they were the only ones who were resolved not to defile themselves, not to give in to Babylonian nationalism. Like church, we are called to be a people uh, of God. We are called to be a peculiar people, a holy people, a people who are set apart for God alone. And what they did to stand against the wishes of the king and the kingdom were the very embodiment of what holiness means. They set themselves apart from everybody else. They made themselves peculiar from everybody else so that they could be fully surrendered to the one true God. And so church, as I close, I want to leave you with the words of Paul. He's writing to Christians who are living in Rome, living under another more powerful empire than even Babylon. And so he writes in Romans chapter 12, 
beginning in verse 1. He says this. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. He says, This is your true and proper worship. Verse 2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His perfect, pleasing, and perfect will. Church, that's my prayer. May we be a transformed people rather than a conforming people. May our, our minds be renewed with the truths of God's word. May we remember our calling to live within, but don't live with sin. And so friends, if you're listening today and you're listening to this message and you're, and you're tired of living the life that you are in, like if you feel stuck or if you feel like you're, you're confused and divided between two worlds or two realities or two loyalties, I want you to know that Jesus has a plan for your life and he wants to be part of your life. And friends, if you are ready to receive Jesus into your life today, I want to invite you to receive him in baptism. If you would email us, you can email us at questions at lakemercedchurch.com. We'd love to connect with you. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to walk with you on that path toward Jesus. I hope to hear from you. God bless you. And may you live richly within that tension of life this week. We will see you next week.